0: Please be advised that this podcast explores the topics of death, burial and infanticide and features the names of people who are now deceased. If this is the first time you're listening, it will make more sense if you start with episode one. (laughs) What's the year on it? I can't even remember what the year is. It's near the the time when the cemetery closed, so it's the 1860s, I'm pretty sure. yeah. What if they were buttered like Do that? Today I'm
1: down in no, one of the, the library's center. conservation and labs looking at items that relate to the Devonshire Street Cemetery.
0: Is this a, a similar period, this one? looks yeah, like this is the of the... oh, this is an ivory engraving. 18th century. Wow. Yeah, kind of, is the hair in there? <sighs> Can we have a look at it again? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I've, I've
1: spent the... years researching the library's collection, compiling lists of materials of evidence yeah, that could help tell the story of the cemetery in an, an exhibition. So these will be displayed together, right? So that one on as well. The
0: list or not? Yeah, they yes, are this on was SPF. Less than a
1: year away from opening, it's time to make final selections and to start figuring out how to fit it all into the
0: gallery space. Mm-hmm. Do you want to have a look at the image and on this, the side this one away? as well? Oh. Do you want to just pair those <laughs> together or is it overkill?
2: I could really see that a nice custom case.
0: Custom case, you mm. said? I mean, it is such a library. Our 3D so designer
1: Paul is here, along with Sabrina, the exhibition's producer, and Helen and Kath from the conservation team, who take measurements, assess each item's condition, and decide on any necessary treatment.
0: 204 has a little bit of damage on one side, just a, like a tear repair kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, okay.
1: These sessions go for hours, but we seem to have cracked the back of it.
0: OK, amazing. So the, pin, the last thing is the, is the government. Just oh, change. this giant Just thing. thing.
1: Wow. One of the items because of particular interest it, to me today them them. is one we haven't so seen before.
0: So maybe if I hold it.
1: It's a thick, leather-bound volume of yellow pages. We may need to look at this whole thing. Let's see, look at all this. Oh, my God. These are the recordings of the votes and proceedings of the New South Wales Legislative Assembly from 1861. So this is the correspondence. So we're looking for Reverend Walsh. I promise these are way more interesting than they sound, especially when you get to the first of the 323 documents submitted to the government over a 15-year period, addressing the state of Sydney's burial grounds.
0: Oh, here we go w h walsh to bishop of sydney 10th of april 1849
1: page 19. awesome it's here that we find some of the earliest reports of the devonshire Uh street
3: cemetery's demise
1: oh listen to this bit
3: it is now scarcely possible to dig a grave without disinterring the remains of dead bodies and i have myself on several occasions seen the side of coffins projecting at various depths to the great distress of all right-minded persons.
1: At the end of our last episode, the first burials were being made in the new Sandhill Cemetery, and it was all about order. 20 years later, the cemetery is in trouble. It's overcrowded, it stinks, and there's something oozing from the walls. How did this happen? In this episode, we'll explore what went wrong. How did this place of order and reverence turn into a stinking health issue for the quickly expanding city? And why did finding a solution take so very long? You're listening to The Burial Files, a podcast about love, loss and the layers of history that lie beneath our feet. It's about rediscovering the places we think we know. I'm Elise Edmonds, Senior Curator at the State Library of New South Wales. The wonderful Lisa Murray is one of the City of Sydney's
4: official historians and a self-described cemetery tragic. I'm a cemetery tragic. I did my PhD on cemeteries in New South Wales, on landscapes and memory. Lisa literally wrote the book on Sydney's cemeteries,
1: so she's the perfect person to take us back to how it all began.
4: What is really, I think, interesting and special about the Devonshire Street Cemetery is the way that they had the opportunity to establish new burial practices here in the colony of Sydney. They had a chance really to start again. The old Sydney burial ground on the side of Sydney Town Hall, it was utilitarian, was rather chaotic. It was small. It didn't really serve their purposes. It was in clay soil which was really bad in terms of health. So they set aside an area which was double the size. At the edge of town, it's got sandy soil. And while it was granted to the Church of England, it wasn't beside the church. So it's not a churchyard, it's a cemetery. That's a novel concept in the 19th century. So it's very important in the sort of development of the burial reform movement, which is happening across Britain and Europe. The
1: reform movement Lisa is talking about here was trying to address, as the British Parliament put it, the evils arising from the internment of bodies. In the early 1800s, the population of England was exploding. Towns were crumbling, graveyards were overcrowded, and there was a push to remove cemeteries from populous places, to separate the dead from the living. And graveyards weren't the only places experiencing an overflow. Prisons were so overcrowded that ships were converted into floating jails. This need for space was one of the driving factors for establishing the New South Wales colony in the first place. So it makes sense then that this new colony was well placed to sit at the forefront of these reforms. The Devonshire Street Cemetery is placed on the very outskirts of town and the government takes the opportunity to write a set of regulations to control the layout and direct
4: how burials should take place. And so they actually said that the cemetery should be divided into really two main areas, a vault area and an area for general burials. When they talk about vaults, what they mean is sort of brick-lined graves that could accommodate at least four burials or more so that, that people could aspire to maybe, you know, establish a dynasty and have sort of generations of their family buried in the one family vault and they directed that they should be in orderly rows and of a certain width and breadth for the general graves and that there wasn't to be too much of a gap between the graves. So they're obviously trying to get a sense of order and economy of use of the ground. So if you're one of the great and
1: good of Sydney, the vault or the general section is where you'll end up. But not
4: everyone can afford the expensive business of burial then they set aside a third area for the peculiar and special purposes at the discretion of the chaplain. And we don't know too much about what they actually meant by that, but certainly later descriptions suggested that that was an area that was used for the unbaptised, for executed criminals and possibly even for suicides. And it may well be that that was where they also buried paupers. And not just paupers, they're often just called sort of the common grave area, so people who couldn't afford to pay for a headstone but could afford to buy a grave plot would be buried in the common burial area. So it was extremely class-based.
1: So we have three areas set out, and the regulations are published in the Sydney Gazette for all to see it's ready to go. But the first burial actually takes place the year before the ground is consecrated.
3: In this grave is deposited the remains of Hugh MacDonald, late quartermaster in Her Majesty's 46th Regiment, who after a lingering illness, which he sustained with patience and resignation, departed this life on the 9th of September, 1819, aged 36 years leaving behind him a widow and family of young children to deplore his premature dissolution. Here gives this tribute to his memory. The short span of life forbids us to form any remote expectations.
1: Hugh MacDonald's is the first of many incredible epitaphs to grace the tombstones in this cemetery. We'll explore more of these in future episodes, but for now, back to 1820 the Reverend Marsden consecrates the ground, making it holy for Church of England worshippers.
2: By virtue of our authority in the Church of God, we have now consecrated and set apart from all profane use this ground to be a resting place for the remains of those who have departed in the Lord.
4: But very soon, the other religious denominations start asking for burial space as well. There are about seven different denominations that uh, are given land and then given extensions, and, and so it, it spirals on. A lovely 1842 map in the library's
1: collection shows these seven denominations laid out. The Church of England and Roman Catholic sections are about the same size. The next largest is the Presbyterian, followed by a row of much smaller sections that face onto Devonshire Street. Jewish, Wesleyan, congregational chapels and the smallest sliver of land set aside
4: for the Quakers. The other religious denominations also had a class-based system, but some more than others. (laughs) So you get this situation where each of the denominations were responsible for their own fees and charges, but they charged different amounts. So they had this situation that... Some of the poorer classes actually were getting buried in certain denominational areas because their fees and charges were cheaper. Apparently the Wesleyans were quite generous and had reasonably low fees and so it was said that even some of the Church of England people were actually sort of getting buried in the Wesleyan section because it was what they could afford. So I think there's this really interesting sort of social dynamics actually happening that even though people adhered to a certain kind of religious denomination, to get a respectable burial they were prepared to compromise on some of their religious beliefs. I think it shows a pragmatism in colonial society.
1: Regardless of where your grave is dug, if you live in Sydney between 1820 and the 1860s, you're going to end up in this cemetery. In these four decades, Sydney's population will grow from around 12,000 to over 100,000. It seems that the officials who placed the cemetery on the outskirts of town could not have begun to imagine how Sydney would grow. The governor at that time, Lachlan Macquarie, may have had a vision to develop the town and expand the settlement. But at this time, it was still a place whose first function was to punish criminals, a place that would see convicts continue to arrive for the next 30 years. The idea that Sydney would grow to fill the few short kilometres between the township and the cemetery would have seemed ludicrous. And the cemetery wasn't the only place that Sydney wanted out of its way. In January 1820, as the consecration ceremony was in full swing, building was underway right next door. Macquarie's Benevolent Society, formed in 1813 as an outdoor charity providing food and clothing to the needy on the streets of Sydney, was being given a permanent home.
5: Sydney's Benevolent Asylum was designed as a place of refuge, respite, and possibly recovery for people who'd fallen on hard times.
1: Dr Peter Hobbins is a former library fellow and a medical historian at the University of Sydney.
5: So some of the people who became inmates or residents of the asylum included those who were in the wording of the time, blind, lame, or infirm, who had some sort of enduring disability, either caused by birth or by their difficult lifestyle in the early colony. So they often ended up being fairly permanent residents there as well. On the other hand, it was also a place where, for instance, very poor people coming into the colony could be sent until they found employment or could be sent off elsewhere where they might find employment. So it had a little bit of a workhouse feeling to it. It also did tend to accommodate a lot of single mothers, unwed women at the time who you know, had fallen you know, prey to somebody. The Benevolent Asylum sounds like a lovely idea that there's now a place that has the governor's patronage that allows people to be sent somewhere rather than just living on the streets or falling on charity. Now they have a place where they can be housed. But it's very interesting to see where the Benevolent Asylum was placed. Not only was it put next to the Devonshire Street Cemetery... But in fact, both of them were on the outskirts of town. They were actually on the toll gate leading into and out of the very boundaries of Sydney City at the time. And I think that tells us a lot about how the well-to-do citizens of the city felt about the potential for the spread of disease and corruption and vice from the more humble classes of society. They wanted to have them right at the furthest remove of the city and for the people in the benevolent asylum to know that, to realise that they were being given charitable treatment, but that they were on the outer and yet through hard work or recuperation, lifting themselves up by their bootstraps, maybe they could come back into the fold of the central part of the city. But one of the problems was it was always full. In fact, it was always overcrowded. So it was initially built for 200 people, it very rapidly filled to having 500 people. And what that meant was not only were these people all requiring feeding and care, uh, but they also were very susceptible to infectious diseases that might hit a very crowded institution already full of potentially sick and undernourished people. So as a result, the Benevolent Asylum right next to the Devonshire Street cemeteries often produced quite a few people who went across the road and were buried there as well. You know, it was actually a place where many people died for one reason or another.
4: So the Devonshire Street cemeteries end up being 12 acres and they called it a cemetery but it was seven separate cemeteries or burial grounds, each with their own gates, each having fences around them. So you couldn't move from the Roman Catholic area into the Presbyterian area. You had to go back out and around and back in. So they were operating as totally separate areas, even though they were all clustered together. And it became obvious fairly quickly within really a couple of decades that this cemetery wasn't going to be big enough for the growing population of Sydney.
1: And indeed it was not, which brings us very nicely back to where this episode began. Back in the lab, looking at the reports of overcrowding that start in the 1840s and don't stop for the next 30 years.
0: Yes, 1849. Yeah, it was written in 46, 40. Here we go. 49. 49. Oh, so he forwards the letter. I forward to you. So the bishop writes to the um, the Lord Bishop of Sydney writes to the Colonial Secretary. So it's gone up the chain. Yes. So, he so he says, unclose unclose. please refer to the enclosed letter. Yeah. OK, can I just oh, get sorry in here? here and then you guys oh, can you go to town excited. reading it. In 1849,
1: the Lord Bishop of Sydney writes his second letter to the Colonial Secretary worried about the Church of England Cemetery, by now the largest
3: of the seven. My personal observation of the crowded and offensive state of the ground leave no alternative but to close the spot as a place of burial not only to prevent the disturbance which now unavoidably occurs of the remains of the dead, but to guard against the danger which may be apprehended of communicating infection to the living.
1: And then he complains about the state of the cemetery, its highly unbecoming appearance, its encouraging irreverence for the dead, and injuring the moral and religious character of the people. Um, He also submits a surveyor's assessment that he's actually commissioned himself. So, yeah, it backs up much of what the bishop says about the overcrowding. But also, this is actually quite interesting, he reports that the lower part of the cemetery near the entrance was covered about three years ago with new soil to a depth depth of of nearly three three feet. feet.
3: Which has enabled the sexton to dig the ground over again till he came upon the coffins originally interred, A large part of even this artificial spot is full, the coffins being very much nearer the surface than usually thought to be advisable.
1: So they've actually carted in new soil to build up the ground to get more vertical space. It's amazing, and it's still not enough. And it seems that, as Lisa explained, the issue of class and where you're buried is
3: causing issues too. Especially if there be any desire for any particular spot, The place at present in use is in bad repute on account of its proximity to the graves of those persons who were executed.
1: So, while there might be a less crowded section, no one wants to be buried anywhere near those who have been hanged in the nearby jail. The state of the cemetery is also not lost on the public. Complaints start to make their way into the pages of the local newspapers.
0: A little more attention toward keeping it in order would be well dispensed. The graves are some of them disfigured and out of order, and briars and brambles are allowed to grow too luxuriously around them.
1: So the government is well aware of the problem, and as early as 1843, they swing into action, surveying potential sites for a new burial ground. Over the next few years, there's a flurry of activity. Plans are drawn up, budgets laid out, reports prepared, And in 1847, just a couple of kilometres away, another sandy expanse, better known today as Moore Park and the Centennial Park area, is chosen as the site for a new general cemetery. An analysis of the latest census data is completed to make sure each religious denomination is given their fair share of space. But unlike Devonshire Street, it is planned as a single cemetery, surrounded by a single wall, everyone delivered into the everlasting together. Problem solved, or not.
4: What the colonial government, particularly the Surveyor General, didn't really anticipate was the amount of sectarian feeling within the community, the amount of rivalry between the Church of England and the Roman Catholics and other denominations. And so everyone just said, we want our own denominational area. You might give us a cemetery, not a churchyard, but we want our own area. And, you know, people were saying, what would happen if like a Roman Catholic funeral came up against the Church of England, it would be chaos. At The time it was just seen as being an outrageous suggestion that we could have this general cemetery. So they didn't use it. Church of England just said, forget it. We're setting up our own. That's how we get the Camperdown Cemetery at Newtown.
1: But it's not only the churches who throw a spanner in the works. Five years into the planning and preparation, the new cemetery walls are being claimed by the shifting sands. The area floods and it's not looking great. It's now 1858, 15 years after the original complaints that spurred the government into action. They reassess the Moore Park site and declare their intention to abandon it. Meanwhile, back at Devonshire Street,
3: The present cemetery for the Wesleyan body is so full that it is difficult to find as much unbroken ground as will admit opening a new grave, and very soon it will be impossible to occupy it longer as a burial ground.
1: Sound familiar? With complaints on the rise, the government is feeling the pressure, and in December of 1859, Sydney's health officer weighs in with his quarterly report. Henry Graham is a gentleman very much preoccupied with the condition of the atmosphere. And when he turns his attention to the Devonshire Street Cemetery, his assessment is damning.
2: A short time back, I received a letter from a person living near the burial grounds. He begged to point out to me the filthy and overcrowded state where some 20 or 30 bodies were interred weekly many not exceeding two feet below the surface of the land, that the effluvia was at times unbearable.
1: It seems the good officer took his duties quite seriously and spent some considerable time in the cemetery. When he overhears visitors discussing the terrible conditions of the place, he introduces himself. They lead him to a plot in the upper part of the ground where a coffin is partially exposed. He describes it as...
2: Exposed at one end, recently interred, It was not more than a foot underground and appeared if some animal had been scratching around it.
1: Grabbing a nearby stick, he starts poking the surrounding ground and confirms his fear that this coffin is not alone in being buried a foot or less below the surface. He hovers by a funeral that's underway and sees a coffin being stacked on top of those recently exposed in the open grave. The gravediggers tell him that if anyone has purchased a plot, they can bury as many people as they want in it, and there's not much they can do about it. He also quizzes nearby residents who report that,
2: Offensive effluviant comes in puffs for a second. This is easily accounted for. On one of my visits to the grounds, I distinctly perceived the effluvia.
1: Effluvia, what a great word. Here's Peter Hobbins again.
5: One of the main strands in medical thinking through the 19th century was a belief in miasma theory, which basically said that noxious gases or emanations coming up out of the earth could produce pestilence, sickness, disease amongst people in that vicinity. Smelly places, whether they be abattoirs or tanneries, also swamps were seen to generate not what we would think of as germs but maybe particles of disease that floated on the air and affected people. The miasma theory certainly also applied to cemeteries as well and there was a strong sense that The smell of putrefaction, of bodies rotting under the ground, particularly if they hadn't been buried deep enough or if they were exposed by repeated burials in the same area, that was certainly seen to be a major cause of potential disease.
1: So it's no great surprise, with all he's seen, that Henry recommends immediate closure and that new grounds be found.
5: Far from
2: the city and that, for economy's sake, it should be approached by railway.
1: Nine months after these recommendations are submitted to the City Council, we see a series of advertisements appear in the Sydney Gazette. The Department of Lands are on the hunt for such a space. The government is once again onto the case, surely a speedy closure to save Sydney from the feared outbreaks of diseases at hand. Not so hasty,
4: first an inquiry. We get reports in the 1840s and and again in the 1850s. They basically have some parliamentary inquiries. They didn't actually close the Devonshire Street cemeteries until 1866, 67, and that was really, it was replaced by Rookwood Necropolis. But just the lag time in kind of sorting it all out means that the poor Devonshire Street cemetery becomes this space that gets enveloped by this bustling 19th century city and it becomes a place not to be revered but to be shunned and when it's sort of closed to any new burials, it gradually becomes overgrown because the cemetery trustees are no longer really taking an interest in it and they're not getting the money in through their fees and charges to actually sort of invest back into their cemeteries. You can imagine in the newspapers, it becomes quite a sort of sensational discussion around what do we do with the dead and should this cemetery still be right here in what was now becoming the sort of centre of town.
2: Illustrated Sydney News, Saturday the 13th of July, 1878. The brick and stone buttress in Elizabeth Street, through which slimy and offensive matter oozes after rainy weather, shows that it is high time some more definite action was taken in regard to this death nest in our midst. The health of the living demands the removal of the dead to a distance which precludes even a chance of its suffering from their undue proximity.
6: Well, I mean, some people lived there homeless people. Dr Katie Gilchrist is a
1: historian at the University of Sydney, a former library fellow and author of the book Murder, Misadventure and Miserable Ends, Tales from a Colonial Coroner's
6: Court. So people literally camped there because, you know, there was a certain degree of shelter at least because being homeless was a crime, unfortunately. If you couldn't give a good enough reason why, why you were in a place in the dead of night, perhaps having a kip under a tree, if you got picked up in the Domain or in Hyde Park for that reason, then you'd more than likely be sent down to Darlinghurst Jail. Um, so people, some people did make their home in the cemetery because they were less likely to get harassed.
1: Twelve acres of tombstones, crumbling fences, oozing walls, densely overgrown... Many parts not visible from the street. Pitch black at night. Separated from the graves by a flimsy wooden fence is the benevolent asylum and the police barracks to the west. From the smaller denominational grounds along Devonshire Street to the south, you can see the Sydney train terminus across the road. A ramshackle collection of tin sheds. And to the east are the working class streets of Surrey Hills, populated with
6: industry and a growing reputation for crime. Sydney was dirty and it was polluted and it was thick with smoke and it was noisy and chaotic and it was very unregulated. Sorry, Hills, it was. there were a few respectable pockets, but mostly it was terribly insalubrious. It was houses fronted onto street. There were no pavements. It was literally lanes, alleyways. People lived and worked in these tiny winding streets. There were forgeries and bakeries and hawkers and blacksmiths. And so there'd be horses everywhere and it would stink of manure and there was sewerage was dreadful. It was full of boarding houses as well. It would have been horrible, basically. That there was this big abandoned cemetery was quite close by was 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 in some ways appropriate but also sort of just m- marked it as the 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 boundary of between respectable areas and and not so respectable and between the living and the dead almost if you like
3: the devonshire street cemeteries had been allowed to fall into a deplorably neglected condition A large portion of the graveyard has been overgrown with thick scrub and has formed a screen under cover of which acts of desecration have been committed by ghouls in safety. The crosses have been smashed from the tops of tombstones and other ornaments have been destroyed, apparently to get the metal with which they were fastened on. Far worse, however, is the unmistakable evidence of the opening of graves illegally. The covering slabs of large vaults may be seen shifted bodily to one side in order, apparently, to permit a view of the interior for purposes of loot.
6: It was it was the perfect place to conceal crimes because it was almost a wasteland.
1: It's no wonder then that dark and seedy stories emerged from the cemetery even before its closure. As early as 1850, an eyewitness testified to the Sydney court that he saw...
3: A mouldy-headed old gentleman in earnest conversation with a female outside the cemetery wall. The report continues to detail the events witnessed. And when, as he conceived, they had formed a Pacific alliance, he saw them deposit themselves behind a tombstone upon which Resurgent was written. The paramour, Anne Fitzgerald, an elderly lady, just emerged from Tarban Creek, pleaded guilty to having had an interview with Mr Walsh and was sentenced to seven days' imprisonment.
1: The most miserable thing about this story is not the reference made to Tarbon Creek, the lunatic asylum where Anne Fitzgerald had been a recent resident, but that while the court finds Anne guilty of prostitution, in a stunning contradiction, her client having testified he went behind the tombstone only to deal with a case of dysentery, is given a glowing character reference by his employer and is immediately discharged. This one short story brings many social issues of the time into focus. Most notably, what life was like for the most vulnerable residents of Sydney and how the cemetery became a player in the desperate situations many women found themselves in.
3: Sydney Daily Telegraph, Thursday, 11th of September, 1879. The body of a male infant was found in the Devonshire Street Cemetery on Wednesday, September the 3rd, and the post-mortem examination showing that it had been stillborn. The coroner's jury returned a verdict in accordance with the medical evidence.
6: Infanticide was huge. On average, in the mid to late 19th century, 40, 50 babies were found a year in Sydney alone, and that's just the ones that were found because there were so many more that would never have been discovered. Determining whether a child had been born alive or dead was actually quite difficult. There was a very thin line between even being born a dead or alive in, in, in the 19th century because tiny lives were so fragile. And also it was so easy to kill a baby mm-hmm. and, and make it look like it had actually been born dead. It's terribly shocking today, but women had been killing their babies for centuries. It was a form of birth control in many respects. In some ways, it really polarized society. The the benevolent asylum was very much criticized for taking in single women who were about to give birth. But then there were other people who were a bit more charitable and said, well, what else are we going to do? And so I think a lot of women probably did panic because if they gave birth out of wedlock and they did give birth to a dead baby, which was actually quite common, they feared that nobody would believe them, especially if they'd given birth on their own. So they would leave a baby in a field on a wasteland in the Devonshire Street Cemetery.
4: And so what started out as being forefront innovative burial practice in Sydney becomes The exact opposite, the epitome of everything they were trying to avoid, you know, the overcrowded, overgrown, unloved burial grounds that were a potential threat to the health of the citizens and totally encased by the the throbbing city. Next time
1: on The Burial Files...
4: Devonshire Street Cemetery's headstones are obviously the bit that captures everyone's imagination.
0: Sacred to the memory of Jane Rees, who died 28th of June, 1841, aged 10 years and nine months.
1: Before we tell the story of its exhumation, we're taking you on a tour of Devonshire Street Cemetery.
2: William Smith Harvey died 8th November 1878, aged 43 years, leaving a wife and seven children.
1: What can the headstone inscriptions tell us about life and death in 19th century Sydney? Anne Devlin, wife of Captain Arthur Devlin. She died 13th of February 1841, after giving birth to a beautiful daughter. She left a husband and five infant children, aged 26. Many thanks to Lisa Murray, Peter Hobbins and Katie Gilchrist for sharing their knowledge with us. Please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us to help other people find the podcast. If you're in Sydney between the 25th of May and the 17th of November, 2019, be sure to swing by the State Library to visit Dead Central, the exhibition, where you can see many of the items we've been talking about in this podcast. This episode was produced by Sabrina Organo and mixed by Sonar Sound. It features the voices of Rupert Dagar, Brandon Burke, Maya Lair and Annie Finsterer.
5: I'm Elise Edmonds.